It's really important that people have done some work internally because you have to get over that story in your head, that narrative that you're telling yourself in order to go and help other people. Because everybody's story matters and somebody's gonna benefit by you sharing your story. But if you can't come to the microphone in a way that is gonna be authentic to you and gonna be honest, then people will see right through that. And we see evidence of that all the time in the headlines. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Boat. Hey there, I'm so excited about this week's episode with our friend Heather Adams. Heather is an on-site alumni and the founder and CEO of Choice Media Communications. Lindsay and I had such a powerful conversation with her, all about what her experience as a storyteller and publicist has taught her about truly owning our stories and the importance of doing our work. We also touched on a topic that I think many of us are struggling through coming out of two years of a pandemic community, or rather the lack thereof, and how to create sustainable relationships. Heather shares the story behind her search for a new best friend and her tips for prioritizing friends in busy schedules and being willing to continue to lean in even when it doesn't look like what we thought it was going to look like. I just feel like this episode felt so timely and I can't wait for you to meet Heather. If you've ever wondered why it's so hard to make adult friendships, I want to let you know that you are not alone. And if, like Heather, you want to find a new BFF, we've got a brand new free resource coming in July called How to Skip the BS and Find a BFF, Three Steps to Making Friends as an Adult. You can head to today's show notes to join the waitlist and be the first to know when this free resource launches. All right, let's jump into the interview. Welcome, Heather. I'm so excited that you're here. Before we started, we were just chatting, and you guys fell into a very familiar just chat back and forth, and I was sitting over here just really enjoying it because I know you guys have a deep, rich history that I'm sure we'll get into. But Heather, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. It's weird, y'all know, for me to be on this side of the mic. I know. I was wondering what you were feeling. preparing the people to come and sit with you. I loved it. We were like just catching up on all sorts of things. And you were leaning forward perfectly into the microphone, even though it wasn't taping. Yes. <laughs> it was like that you've trained other people to do it. So you do it And to so have time. a ruler on your back when you're yeah, doing an interview. So you sit up straight. So your voice projects. Oh, and that's good. You have good posture. I didn't know that one. Yeah. Any oh, other tips? Tip, like ruler on your back, particularly if you're doing television interviews, because then you look like you have yes. great posture. Yeah. You also, if you're doing TV, want to cross at your ankles, not at your knees. Oh, if you're a female know. wearing a dress. Oh, I knew that one. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I'm sitting like this, even though there are no cameras. Heather is a PR expert. Yes. And you lead your own uh, company, Choice. Choice Media and Communications. And it's so fun to see you thrive in that leadership space in addition to being one of the best publicists in town. Thank you. That's high praise coming from you. I always said that if I ever did something that I needed a publicist for, I would use you. 
Well, yes. you would have to because you would hurt my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like you have the perfect amount of woo mm-hmm. and thank you aggression. Oh, yeah. There's the drive for sure. I love that. Woo and aggression. I yes. am keeping that. I'm <laughs> going to use that in my bio moving forward. Perfectly. Yes. That like being a publicist is the perfect job because you're very likable. Mm-hmm. Thank you. But you also, I, I feel like, would be like a dog with a bone yeah, to it's get very persistent. me out there for whatever the oh, thing 100%. is. Oh, 100%. Particularly if I love you. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. I want to win for you. And so... That means I'm going after it as hard as I possibly can. Well, I feel like you've built out a lot of clients that you love. That's what I make up. Well, it's, you know, I mean, it's taken me time and season in my career to get to this place. But I was just talking this morning to our team. And it's nice to be in a place where you're not desperate for business. You don't have to take every opportunity that comes to Mm -hmm. you. You can really curate the kind of clientele that you want to serve and the roster that, because, I mean, we serve as megaphones for people. Mm-hmm. And you want to be a megaphone for someone who is doing good in the world, whether that's through a product or a service or a message that they have. And so I do not take it for granted that we are in the place where we can be thoughtful about who we say yes to and who says yes to us. Yeah. You know, I just was trying to think about, I don't really know exactly what question I'm asking, but Mm -hmm. I think like the work that we do at Onsite is also about sort of like people owning and telling their story. Mm. And I feel like that is also like the work that you help people do. That's it, it, Lindsay. I mean, I tell people all the time I'm a storyteller. Mm. And when I go back in my career and look at like the fingerprints all the way through my life that got me to this place, it all started when I was a little girl and loved to read and write. Mm. And I loved and had a gift for writing. And I remember in high school, um, one of my English teachers who I absolutely loved noticed that about me and paid attention to that. And then I was served on the yearbook staff and I'm sure there are plenty of listeners who, like me, served as their yearbook editor. No, I actually went to yearbook camp. You I did? did. <laughs> you did, too? I did, too. I know. I tell people Stop that, and they're like, y'all? what do you do at yearbook camp? It was like we had to go as an editor on the yeah. yearbook because it, like, is where we did the, like, really planning creative planning yeah. for, for the oh, yearbook. Oh, I love that you yeah. did that. Mm. Well, so then all three of us yes. are in that space. And my yearbook editor, or I was the yearbook editor, and my yearbook advisor was also an English teacher. Mm. And she said to me, you have a gift for telling other people's stories. Mm. And it was like, oh, my gosh. Somebody noticed that in me. And, you know, you have those people in your life that believe in you before you believe in yourself. And it Mm -hmm. was like she paid attention and noticed that in me. But because she called it out, I noticed it in myself. Yeah. And maybe yeah. would not have noticed that without her bringing it to my attention. And it just gives you confidence to yeah. move forward. But that was later in college when I was at Georgia, I did an internship in the Georgia Secretary of State's press office one mm-hmm. summer between my junior and senior year. And I remember the press secretary what like watching him 
And it was long before Scandal and Olivia Pope. <laughs> but think, I mean, yeah, yeah bring that, that type of energy, you know, yeah. um, to mind. That's exactly what both he and the assistant press secretary, the press secretary was a man and the assistant press secretary was a woman, both Georgia grads, might I add. <laughs> and I was working for them and I didn't understand or know what a publicist was before then. But I remember watching them and they were the buffer between their client, the secretary of state mm -hmm. and the media. And I was absolutely obsessed. And so it was taking that storytelling and then that, relationally driven buffer that you served as and marrying those two together. And that's, to me, the best parts of what I get to do. I love it. When you're helping people, mm -hmm. like, own and tell their story, mm -hmm. how, like, important is it that they have, like, done some, like, emotional healing or some work around it? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people who have shame or guilt around their story in some way, and so they're afraid to tell it. Mm. Oh, yeah. So if they haven't done some kind of work around it, yeah. then it's very difficult for me to bring that out. Some people think, oh, my story's not important, and so they don't want to tell it for that reason. Mm -hmm. Some people think, oh, I don't want to be salesy. Right. about myself. So they don't like being in that position of telling their story because they feel like it's inauthentic to who they are and you have to overcome that. So it's really important that people have done some work internally because you have to get over that story in your head, that narrative that yeah. you're telling yourself in order to go and help other people. Yeah. Yeah. Because everybody's story matters, mm -hmm. and somebody's going to benefit by you sharing your story. But if you can't come to the microphone in a way that is going to be authentic to you and going to be honest, mm -hmm. then people will see right through that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And we see evidence of that all the time in the headlines. Yeah. So true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes me think of, we talk at Onsite sometimes about speaking from your wounds or speaking from your scars instead of speaking from your wounds. And so mm. the importance of doing the work and then speaking from a place of, I've done the healing, I've leaned into this, and you can talk more freely about oh, that. I love that. Like you were like saying. Speaking from your scars, scars instead of your wounds. Yeah. Oh, that's Just like really I think it's good. the importance of doing the work so that you don't. I mean, this is a graphic image, but bleed all over people. Yeah. You know, sometimes when you're in that space. And I think that's what I was thinking of when you were talking about, like, what is the importance of that? Because I wonder if a client, let's say one of your clients, has a situation that they've done something wrong, there's an indiscretion, mm -hmm. they have done something that is quote-unquote harmful or shameful. What is the balance of owning that, working through it in private, coming out and having some right. kind of statement? Like, what do you— how do you advise your clients in those kinds of situations? Well, I would probably tell you differently than other publicists, but yeah. I am always going to want you to stand in truth. Mm. Truth has never served me wrong when I have advised a client to stand in it, even if it's painful, yeah. even if it's difficult. There is so much power in just being honest. Yeah. 
there are a whole lot of publicists out there that would not want you to do that. And I think there's a balance with how much you share. Yeah, we talk about that a lot. Right? Mm -hmm. There are things that deserve to be private, yeah, not secret. That's a good distinction. Right? And so I have navigated with a whole lot of clients, hard seasons, hard, painful things, where in one way or another, they were in a form of crisis, and we were trying to pick up the pieces and navigate the crisis well and figure out what the narrative was going to be. And standing in truth always to me, is the way to go. But that's not always how you might be advised. And Mm -hmm. that sometimes is going to be really, really painful on you to deal with. Even if you're the victim and not the person who had the indiscretion or whatever. Yeah. I, it's funny. I, um, had a transition that felt really hard Mm -hmm. a couple years ago and, Heather was a friend through it. But I often describe that that period as talking about the wound, using that wound metaphor. Yeah. And I always would say that, like, one of the things that made me knew I had to get healing was I felt like my wound was, like, oozing out on people. Yeah. And it was like, um, I remember I had coffee once with Ian Cron as a friend. And he was like, I can see that you're sad and angry. And I realized I hadn't intended for him to see my feelings in that mm-hmm. way. And that it was, they were just oozing out. And so there's no way to keep was, them under wraps. I talked about like sort of the need to like go to onsite and do the work to get healed and right so that then I could sort of speak more clearly mm. from a place of healing yes. and own what I wanted to share with people and keep what I needed to. Private, yes. not secret, as you said. That's so right. true. But that, um, that that was like such a game changer for me to be able to like um, get the healing first and then speak with more control and ownership. Well, and I remember that season very vividly because you and I have been friends for a really long time. And it was like, the Lindsay that I knew and loved was somewhere else. Yeah. But what I want to applaud is you advocating for yourself and going and seeking on site to go Mm. and get that healing because there are a whole lot of people that would sit in the wound and the ooze. Right. Yeah. And would never, and be complacent Mm -hmm. and never go advocate for themselves. And I think sometimes, you know, and I, Obviously, you know, I've been to onsite, and I think what there's so much power in being selfish. People think that being selfish is always bad, but mm. to me, going and and advocating for yourself and doing the work at onsite, it there's so much power in the healing. And you would probably say, Lindsay, that all these people that you've worked with since your connection to Onsite and since you worked through that, like you've probably been able to help a lot of people because you walked through that really painful season. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, I think definitely. And I would, you, we all know that this, this that the world is very small. Oh, yeah. yes. And I think I highly value leaving places well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. 
I think when our wounds are oozing and we're not really in control of the narrative and how we're communicating about stories, that can be so destructive, oh, both yeah. personally and professionally and for other organizations. And and so that stuff stays with you. Yeah. yeah. it It's like somebody has died and you're mm. having to walk through all the stages of grief. Yeah. But in a different, in a different way. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as what you were saying, Heather, uh, the amount of people who you've been able to help indirectly and in, in, indirectly, I think it is just the power of nothing is wasted when you choose to do the work. Mm. Um, but that's what I was thinking when you were, I was just but so y'all, grateful. it's hard. It's so hard. And that's it's the thing. It's hard is to like, just step forward and say, okay, it's I'm going to do It's risky and scary. This. And it I is. also think it's hard when the transition or the, it was inflicted on you. Like you didn't choose I mean, you ended up choosing a hard transition, but often when we go through transition, it feels like something happened to us. Yes. And we are presented with the choice whether I'm going to do the work and own this and come out the other side of it, or I'm going to continue to play the victim. Totally. Yeah. And, and so, I think sometimes we get, we, that there, we over-identify in the victim role sometimes. Yeah. And mm. that there, we get attention for that mm-hmm. and we get, um, People feeding into the narrative we're believing about how we've been wronged yeah. and, you know, like, so that's giving us something sometimes that mm-hmm. we don't want to give up. Yeah, that's right. And we have to actually, like, get in and do the work and look at how we can be different and what we can change mm-hmm. and stop letting well, things happen to us. Taking ownership for that, too. I was last week doing a devotion one morning, and it was about people who had wronged us and allowing that to go and offering forgiveness, but also being mindful of the ownership that you had in the situation yes. too. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think to your point about the victim sometimes being celebrated a little too much, Yeah, it's like, and I don't want to oversimplify this because that I'm not suggesting right. that someone who's a victim no. is wrong, but to me... It's like, oh, yeah, I did play a role in that. And mm-hmm. what can I learn from yep. that that I don't repeat or that I am aware of moving forward or that I look out for or whatever? Yeah. For me, it has been a really helpful practice in those types of situations, kind of from a selfish act of regaining agency in the situation to mm, realize, yeah. like, what role did I play? How can I do this differently? How can I not self-protect? Because that is my tendency is just to self-protect next time, yeah. but to go forward and do it more safely or be cautious of the people I invite in or whatever. I think mm-hmm. it's a regaining of agency often for me. I love that word. I I think it has become more mainstream in the last couple of years, the yeah. word agency, but God, there's so much power in it, mm-hmm. isn't there? And I don't think it's used enough in the setting you're talking about. So I love that you said that and brought that up. Hannah's always telling me I want to use it. And she's like, let's use another word, like choice, that feels more colloquial. So I think choice, it gives me my choice back. It well, makes me I'm feel very like I'm not partial helpless. to the word choice. I know you are. Because that's the name of my <laughs> <That's> business. <it. laughs> Speaking of your business, I was thinking in this of like a transition that you didn't choose so how oh, did yeah. you end up starting Choice? What's the story there? I got laid off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk about not picking. Yeah. So I was the head of publicity at 
a major Christian publishing house mm-hmm. for a really long time, the yeah. better part of 10 years. I was running the department. I was leading our biggest book campaigns. I was serving our biggest authors. And the recession happened, mm-hmm. and we started experiencing round after round after round of layoffs. There would be 10 people laid off. Then there'd be 100 people laid off. Then there'd be 25 people laid off. It was like a sharpshooter taking people out a little at a time. Lindsay mm-hmm. knows because she was there with me. And it was a very tumultuous season. Yeah. And I was in the very last group to be laid off. So I thought I had survived. Yeah. Right? I was with the publicity team in New York City that entire week pitching our newest catalog to the media. And I'll never forget it because I had landed a six-week appearance on the Today Show for one of our authors. Wow. I had a cover story for People Magazine. Like I had all those this, are gets you don't yeah, get. Yeah, those are often. things that don't always happen. It was like a big deal. Yeah. And I got home on a Thursday, and they laid me off on Friday when I went mm. into the office. I did not see it coming at all. I yeah. felt very blindsided, and I also loved those people. They yeah. were my family. Yeah. It was so much more than just a job for me. So mm-hmm. it hurt, I think, a lot more personally because I cared so much about the people. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it was a business decision. And now that I run a business, I get that. Yeah. So I got laid off. And my husband said to me, I don't want you to take your next step out of fear. Mm. Fear that we can't pay our mortgage, fear that we can't feed our children. I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old at the time. Oh, my gosh. And so, um, and we are very much a two-income household. So it was like, I needed a job. I also love working and wanted to work. It wasn't like... I don't picture you as a stay-at-home mom for very long. And I have always wanted to do that. And so when Matt said that to me, it was like, so freeing. Yeah. Like I don't have to run out and be desperate to take the next thing. And our number one competitor CEO, I got laid off on a Friday on Sunday, she called me Mm. and she said, we've heard what's happened. We would like to fly you to our offices to meet with us. We need someone to come in and revamp our publicity department. We think you're the woman for the job. And to me, what that showed in that moment was the power of relationships. Yeah. I had relationships all in our industry outside of just our company. And mm-hmm. so because of that, when people heard the news, number one, they were so kind to offer help. Yeah. But number two, kind of the word spread. And that's why I got that call, which was such a big boost to my ego yeah. at the time, which was very smashed. <laughs> so I flew there and loved their team, loved the authors they represented, and knew what I could offer from a value standpoint. Yeah. And so I negotiated and told them, I don't want to move here. I want to live in Nashville. I don't want to be a full-time employee. Here's what I'm really good at. This is what where I can, you know, solve your problems and and be the of the most help. And so they hired me and in just like the blink of an eye, I went from one company to another as a consultant mm. doing only what I was good at, making twice the money. <laughs> so that's when I realized what we were just talking yeah. about about advocating for yourself. That's when I realized 
I had a specific competency and skill that when people needed it, they were willing to pay for it. Yeah. And that could sound really arrogant, the way that this is coming off. And I don't mean it that way. I think particularly as women, we diminish our skill set and our worthiness. Yeah. And that's what I, that's what I mean here is like advocating yeah. for your worth. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really understood the power of that at work. So I did that for a period of time and I loved it and I loved the work that I was doing, but I missed leading a team. Yeah. They weren't my team, you know, and particularly women. I love leading women and mentoring and pouring into women. And so about four and a half years after that, I decided to launch Choice Mm. and we're about to celebrate eight years. So now I lead an exclusively all-female team and get to do all the things that I love and am good at and enjoy and pour into the women coming behind me. Yeah. Which was not always my hallmark. So I want to hear more about that. I remember you mentioning, so my very first day of work at Onsite, we were doing some work with you and I got to meet you with Lindsay, she was like, come to all of my meetings with me. And so I got to have a meeting with you. And I remember being struck by the idea that you intentionally hired women, that you intentionally poured into women early on in their career to help grow them up and empower them and really just like train and mentor. I love that idea of that. And for you saying it was not your hallmark, tell us more about that. Because we have such a, when there is a scarcity of women at the table, we think that and I know that I've been in the situation that I think I have to protect the one seat that I have That's rather right. than creating more seats. That's exactly it. And that is what I did all the way through my probably mid thirties, yeah, early thirties. I was driven. I saw a goal. I knew what I wanted. I went after it. I, it. If it was a certain title or a certain office or a certain amount of money or a certain stature, like that's what I was doing professionally. Mm-hmm. And I will say we as women are conditioned by society to believe that there is only one seat for a woman at the table. Yeah. When we know well and good now that every seat can be occupied by a woman. But where I was, that was the case. And it was very rare to see women in leadership, but I was fighting tooth and nail for the one seat that I saw could be occupied by a woman. And I was taking everybody down in my wake. Mm. And I remember vividly when my eyes were opened to that because I, for years, served as John Maxwell's publicist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, John is a, I mean, very well-known, best-selling leadership expert, you know, and business leader. And he writes a lot of books on leadership. And he, he had a book called The 360-Degree Leader that mm. I was doing all the publicity on. So as part of that project, there was an assessment that you got when you read the book. Yeah. And I took the assessment, which was a 360 assessment. So you gave it to the people you reported to. You gave it to your peers or colleagues who were on the same kind of level as you, Mm -hmm. and you gave it to people who reported to you. Yeah. And when I got mine back, it was like, oh, crap. So the people that I reported to loved me. I always made them look good. I gave excellent service. I performed well, you know, all of that. The people who reported to me loved me. I always Mm. gave them credit where credit was due. I set them up to be successful. I was always appreciative of their work. 
But the people that were on my same level, Mm -hmm. that were peers, could not stand me. And it was because I was taking them down. I wanted to be first. I wanted to be best. And I wanted you to know I had done it. Mm. And there were a lot of women in that realm. And so, you know, I learned, oh my gosh, this is this is what people think about me. This is the perception about me. And it was such a like stab to my heart because it was not how I wanted people to feel. It definitely wasn't. But it was very, it made me very aware mm. of, you know, how colleagues felt about me. And so at, at that point, I just made a decision like, this has got to change. Yeah. And now I know, like linking arms with other women, we would get multiple seats at the table instead of fighting for one if we went together. Yeah. But I thought, I need to take you down in order for me to advance. And so that's Mm -hmm. what I did for a really long time. And the good news is what was once your downfall can become your hallmark because things Mm. have changed. Yeah. So how do you change that? I think you have to be intentional about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. You know, little bitty things end up adding up to big change down the road. So you have it has to be the long view, the marathon, not the sprint. Yeah. So for example, when I go to lead the women at choice, we do little bitty things that make a huge change in the culture. So one, every single week. When we have our team meeting, we start with gratitude and we end with celebration. Gratitude, like, what are you grateful for right now? What's the good news that you can bring to the team? And then at the end in celebration, where are we winning right now? Mm. Even if it's the smallest thing, like, I just led a call with a new client today and it went so exceptionally well. Well, what has happened, because I've always run choice that way, mm-hmm. is that it feeds into them and becomes a part of the DNA of the company. And so now in between team meetings in our Slack channels, they'll be saying, hey, I want to celebrate Lindsay today because she did such and such. Or, hey, I want to celebrate Mackenzie today because this is what just happened. And I sit back and I'm like, yes, these are small intentional steps that you inject into the foundation of your business that then lead to big change down the road for women in particular. That's really awesome. And I think it's just a small cultural thing because you have so many women who would be on a very similar level. And I'm Mm -hmm. assuming that your team is that way. Right. And you don't want them to fight each other in order to feel like they need to advance. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, your accomplishment getting that person on the Today Show does not diminish her accomplishment in having a great kickoff call with a client, right? Yeah. Both of those are wins. Both of those should be celebrated. But one winning does not take down another one. Yeah. You know, and they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yeah. You can, you know, your success doesn't diminish my opportunity. Yeah. Hey friends, Hannah and I here just to kind of pop in and talk a little bit about what you've been learning here in Heather's episode. I love how so much of this episode has been about owning your story, telling your story and doing the work necessary to do that from a healthy place. And it made me think about our Living Center program. 
One of my favorite things about our Living Center program is I feel like in therapy talk, we talk a lot about your story and owning your story, but it's like, what does that actually mean? And I think all of us carry around these narratives and belief systems about who we are. And it really shapes how we view ourselves and how we view others and ultimately how we view the world. And for me, the Living Center program was so impactful because it helped me not just only identify those narratives, but trace back their origins to make sense of them. So it's not just something that's currently impacting me, but it's been something that's probably been impacting me for a long time, probably by something that I experienced in childhood, both good and bad and quote unquote, any other experience we have shapes how we see ourselves in the world. And so by going back and doing some work around it, it not only helps you understand it, but it helps you be able to rewrite the stories that you want to tell for yourself for the future. Mm -hmm. And I think so much for me in my journey was going back, uh, making sense of those narratives, and then reclaiming agency and power over my story, and then um, giving myself the opportunity to choose who I invited back in to my story. And so if you have been listening to this episode and feel like there are some narratives in your story that you want to go back and revisit and figure out so that you can tell it from a healthy place, we would invite you to connect with our admissions team to see if a living-centered experience might be right for you. You can call them at one 800 341-7432 or email them at admissions at onsiteworkshops.com. You deserve it. As someone who's so relationally minded and I think both from your personal life and your professional life is dependent on relationships and yes. the repair of those and the status of those, what did the reparative work look like when you had that realization of like, oh, all of these people that I work with on the same level can't stand me or yeah. I'm not performing how, I'm not being perceived how I'd like to be perceived. We often say it's not about the rip, it's about the repair. And we really do believe that mm -hmm. there's so much potential when you lean into a relationship and repair it. But what did that look like for you? Well, I had to figure out first where I was jeopardizing mm -hmm. the relationship. And a lot of it was coming in my style of communication at the time. So if I was sending an email, if I was in a meeting, the way I would come across so if I sent, let's say I was sitting in a meeting and we were with leadership in a meeting and there were several peers and then there's our you know leadership team, I always spoke up, I always offered my opinion, mm -hmm. and I always made sure it was clear that I was the one that came up with the idea. Rather than allowing everybody to have a voice, allowing everybody to feel equally heard, I was always the one talking and not doing a whole lot of listening. Yeah. So I had to stop myself and start listening more and talking less. And that's really hard for me. Yeah. That's really hard for me. One other thing just on communication was like in the in emails, for example, you know, you can never judge tone in an email. No. And so people always read it in the worst possible way it could be construed. Yeah. So I was doing everything to do flowery language and kindness, like exude all of that, which at first felt really inauthentic, like, but it was just enough for me. Mm. You know, like if it felt like too much for me, it was just enough on the other end, the person receiving yeah, it. Yeah, I probably should work on my emails. They can be very curt. <laughs> well, and I just am efficient. Yeah. In yeah. my email. Down to brass tacks, like, right? Yes. yes. But sometimes on the other end, the person getting that and then they judge based on that, and then right. that con contributes to your perception. I mean, I'm a communications expert, yeah. <laughs> right? And I was not communicating well 
for my own personal brand. Like, I was about to say, it's relational equity. Like It totally yeah. is, yeah, if I, I, I give you a generous assumption or I don't read it in a negative tone because I have a good general rapport with you. Or I can come back to you and or say, hey, opposite. what did you mean by this? You know, Or if the opposite, if you have got a mm-hmm. personal brand that's like curt and cutthroat, then I'm going to take that assumption. Yeah. So And so years and years and years you have to work mm. yeah. to, to make those changes. And then it's the way you treat people in meetings, it's the way you interact with people in the hallway. It's the way you ask about people's day and yeah. their family and all those things that matter that I was breezing right past. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to talk about on here that we've talked some about personally, and then you've also shared some on social media. So mm-hmm. I know it's a topic that you're comfortable with talking about is just adult friendships. Oh, yeah. And finding friends. It's so hard. It can be so <laughs> hard. We've been doing, we have a, a class called Building Healthy Community yeah. and mm. just have created several resources because I think it's crazy how much we struggle with, one, finding friendships yes. as grown adults, and then two, at really maintaining mm-hmm. and building into yes. really healthy friendships. Yeah, I right. laugh talking to my therapist last year at one point, I was like, do all your 40-something clients come in and still talk about the problems they're having in their friendships? <laughs> because it just felt so juvenile. Yeah. Like, it mm-hmm. felt, I, like, was hearing myself talk to her, and I was like, this feels silly. Like middle school, yes. And I should yes. feel like I should be past this, but mm-hmm. the reality of life was I wasn't. And yeah. there was, like, the need for time and attention. So true. Yeah, I appreciate you asking this question. It is something that I am definitely not perfect at, but care deeply about. But for years and years and years and years, I wanted tons of friendships. Mm. But when you have tons of friendships, they are an inch deep. Mm. So what I have learned in my mid-40s is that I would rather have five really deep, meaningful relationships where it is so much deeper, so much more meaningful so much spe- more special than having tons and tons of friends that I barely know yeah. or that we just get together every so often, right? Yeah. And so I had a best friend for 13 years. She was in my wedding. We had children at the same time. Our husbands did things together. We went out on dates. We lived really close by each other. We did stuff. We lived, we were in each other's lives. Yeah. And that friendship got severed several years ago. And when it got severed, it was literally like she died for me. Mm. Because I loved her so much. And it was very difficult for me to know what to do without her in my life. And so what you're talking about that I've posted on social media and I did a podcast on and all of that was the search for a best friend. Yeah. Yeah. Because as a 40 something year old woman, I was missing that in my life. And I love my husband and I love my children, but they can't replace that. You need that in addition to, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, I need time for Heather. I need time for Heather plus girlfriends. I need time for Heather plus Matt, Heather plus the boys, you know. And so that has been really difficult. And I think what I have learned is. It doesn't matter how many times you don't hear back Mm. 
from the text you sent or how many times you invite and they're not available. You just keep asking because at the end of the day, we all want to be asked. We all want the invitation to be known and seen and understood. And so I do that now with just a few girlfriends Mm -hmm. instead of a whole lot. I still have tons of friends, but the ones that are most in my life, the ones that I really, really want to be a part of my children's lives, I want Matt and I to have great relationships with, that I want to do life with, I have a few of those, and I'm really, really careful about fiercely protecting them. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think that like one of the things that is hard to do when you're a highly functioning, highly capable person that is one of those important ingredients in one of those like really deep inner circle friendships is yeah. like you need to need each other. Yeah. Yeah, and it's okay to to need something. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when you're so driven and, you know, you're going after the goal and you've got a busy, full life, it's not a sign of weakness to crave community with somebody else. Yeah. I mean, we were built for that. Right. There's nothing wrong with us by admitting that we're craving or needing that in our life. Yeah. It's vulnerable. It's scary. Because totally. I think, I think for me, I've been in like a, a transition with friendships and feeling like a different seasons of life in it. Mm-hmm. And I think COVID's not really helping. A lot of us are feeling that right now, which mm-hmm. is why we're creating yeah. lots of resources around it. But yes. it feels really vulnerable to say, hey, I don't have a lot of friends right now. What do you, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. like to lead out in that. And we always joke about giving people the gift of going second. Like, okay, I'm going to say I need it. But I've found when I have that generous assumption that nine times out of 10, everyone, the other person Somebody on their side. Somebody steps forward and says, me too. Yeah, it's like, me too. Or 100%. thank you so much for asking. I was afraid to do that. It's just, it's those moments of risky vulnerability. Well, and let me tell you, after having prayed for a best friend for years, mm-hmm. having been in a whole lot of therapy over wanting a best friend for years, when you finally get that replacement, which I have in my life, it may look different. Hmm. I kept trying to replace apples with apples. That's interesting. And my therapist finally said to me, you can have a best friend again, and it doesn't have to look the way that it looked the last time. Hmm. So I needed that realization, but it's so beautiful and sweet because you're so appreciative and grateful. And I think I interact with Emily, my best friend now, a lot differently than I did in the last severed relationship because I don't want this one to be severed. And yeah. you're different. Well, and I've grown. And you're a different, and different human. Yeah. But, you know, one of my really close girlfriends is a woman I met when I went to Onsite, mm-hmm. to Ari, who has been on this podcast. And if yes. you haven't listened to that episode, you need to listen to it because she is rock star. But we met each other in a place of vulnerability, sharing our stories at OnSite, didn't know each other at all before we got there, spent a week together. And now she lives in Atlanta. I live in Nashville. We talk to each other every single week. We text. We FaceTime. We both are being really intentional because when we left there, we were like, we can't let this Mm. go with this experience. Yeah. You know? That's beautiful. In doing some of the research for some of the 
courses that we've put out and that kind of stuff, I ran across the fact that keeping friendships is really hard as adults. It's so hard. Because there's two ingredients that we don't have access to that actually make like friendships worthwhile. It's, I had to look it up. It is continuous unplanned interactions and shared vulnerability. That's what Mm. I was thinking when you said that. Mm -hmm. And so our adult lives don't facilitate those. We have to intentionally go out and create planned activities where we are constantly with people right? or reoccurring things in our schedule. Like, okay, I have a weekly date in my calendar where my best friend and I talk, or we have a monthly supper club or what, just those regular occurrences. And then we have to be willing to be vulnerable. That's right. And it takes a long time. It takes 200 hours to, to create a close friend. I know. I just 200. learned that recently that it takes 200 hours, like, Locked and loaded with somebody for them to be a really close friend. Yeah. That's a lot of time with somebody yeah. to spend to get close with someone. But, but you know, what I think we do so often is we'll say, oh, I'm going to go to brunch with the girls or, oh, we're going to have book club or, you know, oh, let's go to dinner with mm-hmm. our group or whatever. And then we're so easy to just let that go by if something else pops up. Yeah. You know, like, oh, well, the boys have a ball game, so I can't go to book club tonight. Or somebody got sick, and now I can't have dinner. You know, whatever mm-hmm. it is. We've got to fiercely protect yeah. it. If it's a priority to us, we have to fiercely protect yeah. it in order for the relationship to grow and nourish and be well-maintained. Yeah, it has to be a non-negotiable in our calendar. That's right. Yeah. And for me, that means it has to be on my calendar. Yes. If if it's important and it's not on my calendar, then it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah. No. And I think I often keep other people's priorities more important than my own. So like mm. like you were saying, if the boys have a ball game or this, like mm-hmm. I would say, oh, that doesn't work anymore for our family. And I put off with other people's needs or what they need. And I the things that get axed from my schedule are the things that feed me or That's right. build in my relationships. And so it's an even grabbing a hold of and saying that worth of like my time and my relationships are important and I need this and I'm being willing to say that. So, yeah. But you know, I think when I stepped forward and said what Lindsay's talking about on social media, that I was craving a best friend, I was looking Mm -hmm. for a best friend. I had all these women reach out to me and say, I can't believe that you feel this way. I would have never guessed Mm. that about your life. Yeah. Your life looks so full and beautiful and all the things. You have a ton of friends. I can't believe that you feel this way. It made me feel so validated for you to say that. Yeah. Because I feel that way too. Or I've lost a friend. You know, it it's that point you were making, Mackenzie, a minute ago, which is when you step forward in that transparency and that vulnerability, even as scary as it was for me to admit that. There were so many women that came to me because they felt that way too. And they were shocked that I felt that way. Yeah. So me admitting it was like liberating for them. Yeah. Every every person that I have like caught up with, Mm -hmm. every woman that I've caught up with in the last week has referenced the same like kind of awkwardness or dissatisfaction right now. In their relationships. Yeah. They're feeling like lonely and disconnected. And it's so interesting because I think in some ways during COVID, when you were sharing that statistic, Mackenzie, I think we had that 
um, a lot of us found that frequent interaction, yes, unplanned yeah. interaction. Yep. Because it was such a gift to not have plans. Yes. It, it the, was. It was hard. We're just starting to kind of tiptoe our way back to it. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what to do. It's like we've lost all of our social skills. Totally. Yes. yes. And yep. I hate that for my boys who are teenagers mm. in particular. Yeah. It's hard enough for them to have social skills right now with all the technology. Exactly. But then to have not had proximity to people. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is like what you referenced earlier about the need for us to all be intentional. Mm -hmm. And even the conversation we're having about agency and control and realizing we have a choice in it. Mm -hmm. It's like we can manifest, like you're talking about, healthy relationships. Yeah, And we do have to have thick skin and we have to be intentional and we have to like get over when someone doesn't reply to our texts or... I was having a couple of girls over for dinner tonight and several of them canceled last minute. And then all these other things started changing. And I got so frustrated because I was like, I don't really have the margin to be doing this in the season anyway, but I'm trying. Yeah. And it really made me think to myself several times, I'm, I'm just not going to do this anymore. Right. But after listening to this, I'm like, I need to get thicker skin and I need to be more and keep being intentional. I and can't tell you how many times my on. feelings have been hurt for that very reason. Yes. Like, I would invite a bunch of people over for wine and a charcuterie board, mm-hmm. and three of them would cancel at the last minute. And you're like, I've gone to all this trouble. And it's exhausting it's to, like, exhausting. gear yourself up to do the thing. Like, you already bought food, I and now no one is margin. eating it. I'm yeah. like, yeah. You know, the grace that we extend to those friends mm-hmm. and continuing to invite even when— there's been, I mean, I, I don't want it to border on you're just getting taken advantage of. Totally, right? of course. That, you, you have to be careful boundaries. of toxic relationships and boundaries. Yeah. However, my guess would be if they're in your inner circle mm-hmm. of your top five friends that you do life with the most, that they need the grace, right? right? Because yeah. they're busy, something's happened. They're not just taking advantage of you. And so... I can't tell you how many times I've gotten my feelings hurt because we didn't get asked to do something mm-hmm. or somebody didn't respond or somebody canceled or somebody just de- decided not to show up and never even right. told yeah. me, you know? Mm-hmm. But I decided several years ago I was just going to be the invitation and I was just going to keep asking and I was going to have thicker skin and quit getting my feelings hurt all the time. And it has proven to be so beneficial and richly rewarding. Yeah. The other thing I did in real time last night with one friend that I'm especially close to is I sort of said like, hey, like I get it that you can't come Mm -hmm. last minute. Like I have grace. Yeah. But I do need more in this season from you. (gasps) I love that you held her accountable. and, And it just was like, it was like, just an opportunity to say, like, this is, like, a lonely season, and yeah. I have a four-month-old, and I'm single, mm-hmm. and, yes, this is a choice I've made for myself, but, like, I pictured you to be in this more than you're in it. Yeah. And and th- it feels shitty. To say that. <laughs> to say it, But yeah. you know what? That's a whole healthy you in a place where you can not only – champion yourself, but you can also hold a friend accountable who mm. has agreed to do life with you. Yeah. Right. And then you're re- telling that to, to anybody. No. I mean, that's not that I didn't send that to everybody. That, mm-hmm. But the part, oh, they it was so well received. And th- they were like, you're right. 
we're in this crazy season and I apologize. And, you mm-hmm. know, like we want to be there. And she, she wrote back and said, what specifically do you need from me? And you're able to articulate that, yeah. right? Yeah. And because give her then there's expectations yeah. are managed as opposed mm-hmm. to um, it just being out in the ether and kind of arbitrary. You could be like, I just need to connect with you once a week. Yeah. Once a week, if we have FaceTime, once a week, if we have a phone call, once a week, if we have conversation, once, whatever it is, right? you're able to articulate it and then manage expectations. I think that's so healthy. I know. Mm-hmm. But it, it's funny because so much of our wiring yeah. is self-protective. Mm-hmm. And you're like, is it okay to say this? I mean, I think the real tried and true friendships are like the ones where we can say the hard things yes. and it's received. Yes. And we can have the fight that we have to have and mm-hmm. get over it and know that they're still around on the other side of it. Yeah. It's like we don't just want these superficial, shallow people to do stuff with. That's right. We want people yeah. that are going to be in it when we need them. It's not an authentic relationship if you're not having disagreements. And I think there's strength on the other side of getting through that. Like you've yeah. proven that you're not going anywhere. And that's something that I need in relationships a lot. It's like, are you, when times are going to get tough, are you going to go somewhere? Yeah. And I think some of my best relationships have been on the other side of that to yeah. know we're both invested in this. We're not going anywhere. I'm someone who stays, like that's a, a narrative that I have is like I just eject out. So anytime I can prove like, hey, I'm someone who stays and does hard things in relationships, that's well, important. And I don't know about y'all, but I was really adamant that once I had a friend, that was a friend for life. And I now really understand the whole friends mm-hmm. for a season, season thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, like right now, for example, both of my boys play baseball. And we do a lot of life with the other baseball families. Mm. It is so rich and so fun in this season. I don't think I will be friends with every single one of them after the boys go off to school. You know, when they leave home and they're not at home anymore, we won't be friends with every single one of them the way that we are now. But that's okay because right now it's perfect. You know, it's such a fun community to be doing life with because our boys are on teams together. <laughs> I remember hearing the analogy of like oak trees, flowers, and weeds. Like if you look at relationships oh, and yeah. being okay, like I, I'm someone that's like, you're probably an oak tree forever. I'm like, hey, it's okay for friends to just be flowers. They're the baseball friends. They're great in this that's season. Right. It's lovely. You're not my oak trees. But, and then sometimes someone who's an oak tree goes to be a flower or goes <laughs> to be toxic and you're like, but that's not the deal. That's right. So anyway, yes, I just I have love lots that, of Mackenzie. You can steal it from oak me if tree, you'd like. Flower, weed, weed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then sometimes you've got perennials, like maybe like a hydrangea bush. Uh huh. You know, keeps well, back. I would I keep say you back. and I have been friends for how long? Almost twenty years, maybe. So maybe you're a hydrangea, you know, uh, close to two thousand five or six. Yeah, 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 close to twenty years, not quite. And I would say. You and I could go to dinner tomorrow and it'd be like we hadn't seen each other. You know, if we hadn't seen each other in six months and it'd be like we were together the day before. Mm -hmm. And when we're together, we usually have really deep conversations. But we don't. really shallow ones too. And we also (laughs) talk about reality TV a lot um, and our need for teen dramas. Like any kind of teenage TV show, Lindsay and I are here for. All the me things. Me too, me too. Your Gossip Girls, your One Tree Hills, your oh, whatever. Yes. Lindsay and I have watched all of them and then 
talk about it. Like when Outer Banks came out, she texted me. We hadn't talked in months. She texted me. And she's like, have you watched Outer Banks yet? You've got to watch it. It's a But I think those friendships are okay too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know? I feel like that'd be a hydrangea. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. Right. It's like, I love catching up and value the friendship and know that if I ever need something yeah. that mm-hmm. Heather is there. That's but right. Our, our seasons have been just really different, different and both yeah. right. really busy and full. So. Yeah, in in good ways, but also when we're together, the time is really rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Y'all, this has been so good. I this love that I got wonderful. to like be a part of your. I love that we're just ketchup. sitting around having a girlfriend conversation about podcast. friendships. That's right. Yes. Well, I think it is so like relevant, and mm-hmm. as we said, a lot. It's just hard. It's yeah. harder than you would think, and yeah. so. I think it's so good for us to just talk about it and normalize it and just be like, hey, this is hard. Well, and for you, I think taking this full circle, you start at the beginning of just being aware of how we can use our stories to bring hope to other people um, and Mm. to share the hard things that we've gone through. And so I'm really grateful for you. There's several instances where you just shared your story today that I know is going to help people. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thank you all for what you're doing. Your leadership in this space really matters. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.